The House of Roll journeys far and wide to bring you exceptional quality kitchen and bath fixtures. We've discovered the world's best craftsmen and techniques. Using materials native to the region and tools accustomed to individual craftsmen, we strive for perfection every step of the way. With all of this, you'll see the details of your own story, the story of a life well-crafted. This is the story Craft tells. Welcome to the House of Roll. of America is being squandered. How are we going to restore our nation back to a sensible, citizen-centric government? This is my country. I'm proud to call it home. This is my country. I'll never stand alone. It's time for populism with a purpose. Welcome to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. Joyce is a businesswoman, not a politician, and she's here to offer pragmatic, possible, and post-partisan solutions for the 21st century. Now, your host for Reimagine America, Joyce Cordy. Good morning on this beautiful summer Sunday. Just perfect. One little cloud in the sky. If only our passions were as mellow. Because if your passions were not inflamed this week, you simply were out in the middle of the woods without access to modern technology. We all need some downtime. To quote Montana governor and Democratic presidential candidate Steve Bullock, we need to apply a dose of common sense the shrill demands of politicians and their media acolytes of all political persuasions. I'm going to try in this next hour to give you some information that will enable you to make an independent judgment on last week's events and to encourage you to act on that judgment, whether that's sending a contribution, volunteering for a campaign, calling your senator or representative, making your voice heard, making your heart bigger, being a part of this great republic, this great democracy. Maybe if more of us actually participated, there'd be less passion in the public square. We are the largest Uh, and one of the oldest continuing democracies in the world, and yet we're 122 among those democracies in the rate of voter participation. So I'm hoping that information, instead of political hot coals, will help you to feel like you want to be a part of the solution rather than a part of the problem. And the Non-participation is being a part of a problem. So in the numbers this week, you know, we all know I'm a businesswoman, not a politician, and I look at those numbers and they tell me what's the most urgent thing, were the opportunities for change, etc. And so in the numbers this week, I had written that there were two more mass murderers arrested. And then I turned on the news last night and I discovered... We now have four 
would-be mass murderers arrested in the last five days. And in addition to that, one more would-be mass murderer was sentenced to prison um, before the victims of El Paso and Dayton were even laid to rest. 20. That's the number of presidential candidates it takes to fan the flames of national disunity. So let's talk about mass murder for a minute. And that's what the events in Dayton and the events in El Paso were. They were mass murder. What tells us that the flames of the passions are being inflamed is the disproportionate emphasis on every single loss in El Paso and the, oh, mention of Dayton. Just, you know, if it, 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 it just, for Democratic presidential candidates, it just was not as sexy unless you happen to be Tim Ryan, who is from Youngstown, Ohio, um, and, and feels this very personally. Um, on Monday and Tuesday, we lost two more souls in El Paso who succumbed to their wounds. The stories that the trauma surgeons told about the injuries they saw and the urgent actions they took to save lives are nothing short of horrific. It was worse, some of them said, than anything they had experienced while they were serving in the military in armed conflict zones. Without their extensive experience in combat, it is likely that more lives would have been lost. That says something about the weapons that are available on the streets of America. And sometime we're going to have to talk about that. But for those doctors, practice and experience with different unpredictable scenarios of violence honed their skills. And it saved lives. And by the way, several of those doctors are El Paso natives. Many of the survivors of both Dayton and El Paso will never fully recover, either physically or emotionally. And even while the nation's attention was focused on El Paso and to a shamefully less, lesser extent on Dayton, the parade of would-be mass murderers continued to walk our streets. Luckily, and I do mean it was sheer dumb luck that several more of those mass murderers ended this week on their way to prison before they could hurt anyone. And yes, let me repeat, it was sheer damn luck. In Toledo, Ohio, a 23-year-old, a white male, of course, pleaded guilty to charges surrounding a plan to attack an upscale bar with both guns and explosives. In this case, the defendant pleaded that his girlfriend, who is also charged in connection with this planned mass killing, his girlfriend made him do it. She was, according to the FBI, the ringleader. The two came to the FBI's attention when they showed some disturbing video to a friend, and that friend called the FBI. In Springfield, Missouri, a 20-ish white male walked into a Walmart neighborhood market wearing body armor 
and military fatigues carrying tactical weapons and more than 100 rounds of ammunition. He picked up a shopping cart and walked around the store making a selfie of himself when spotted by the store manager who hit the fire alarm in order to evacuate the building to get people out of the line of fire. And the perp left by a side door where he was confronted by an off-duty retired firefighter. That firefighter had a concealed weapon permit and a concealed weapon, and he held the would-be gunman at, um, at bay until the police were able to respond. And so while that young man denied murderous intent, oh, I was just making a video, sir, local law enforcement is not buying it. They said in a statement, quote, his intent was not to cause peace or comfort to anyone that was in that particular business. And before you jump to the hackneyed old, if more good people were carrying guns, there'd be less gun violence. I want to remind you that this hero in this instance was, one, a retired first responder. He has quick reflexes. Experienced in de-escalation techniques. Nobody got hurt. And, and well-trained in the use of a firearm in a safe manner. But the police lieutenant, Mike Lucas, observed after the young man was in custody, and I agree with this, that in fact he's lucky to be alive. And that's true because had the retired fireman, the, the person who, accost, who accosted him, not been, not been a first responder, somebody used to making quick decisions in, in high-stress situations, and a calm human being, he could have fired, and that would have resulted in the deaths of at least two people. Instead, nobody got a scratch. And we'll be back in just a moment with a few more would-be mass murderers, just for your Sunday entertainment. Listening to Reimagine America. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org. Reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy. All right, what other great news do we have to hear from this week? Oh, God. Well, you know, there was the one in Las Vegas. Y- you know, you wait, were... there's something that happened in Las Vegas? Yeah. This week? Yeah. This week, there was an incident this, in Las, Las this Vegas. This week in Las Vegas, the FBI arrested a 23-year-old and charged him with planning an attack against Jews and LGBTQ individuals. He was planning to attack a synagogue and bars that were frequented by members of the LGBTQ community. Wow, I missed he had, that one. He, they, you know, he, living with his parents... Um, a bedroom full of uh, bomb-making materials, um, AR-15s, and um, and and some um, uh, online conversations with actual white supremacist groups. Yeah, this guy was full on, and um, and and making videos of himself with his AR-15 um, or or higher caliber AR weapon. Um, and and again, it was his online presence that um, 
somebody saw and alerted the FBI, and he will probably spend the next decade of his life, his roaring 20s, in a federal penitentiary. And then, as though you thought, I mean, I thought as I was working on on getting the prep done for today's show, I thought, okay, that's bad enough. You know, what have we got here? We've got a whole, we've got more alienated white um, young men um, who, you know, have have um, uh, issues. And, and we're going to talk about some, some of those issues in terms of how we define it. So I thought that was it. Turn on the news. And in a half an hour news broadcast, that was actually ABC for anybody who wonders what I watch, um, a 26-year-old in Florida is now in federal custody because he posted on his Facebook account, I get off probation in three days and I get back my AR-15, so if I were you, I wouldn't go to Walmart next week. And somebody called the FBI. And last but not least, a 40-year-old made a post in in Connecticut saying he was going to attack a Puerto Rican festival that's going on this week in New Haven, and um, somebody called the FBI. So I, I want you to know, in those five tales of would-be mass murderers, knock on wood, knock on wood that they all failed, right, um, I want you to know there are two things that are common. The alienated white male. And I say that without any thought of white supremacy. It's a different thing. It's, 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 it's you know, it is a social phenomena. And I know a lot of white males under 40 who kiddingly say I'm the most discriminated against class in the United States. I'm looking at one of them right now. Um, and, and you know, I mean, they say it in a joking way because we live in a di- diverse society. But some people, some people, something happens. Somewhere along the line. And they don't, find themselves socially connected in the real world. They don't have friends. And so they go looking online. And it's one of the major downsides of the internet world is that they find, you know, they find buddies in the, in the, uh, game rooms or buddies in, in conversation groups and the way that Facebook is built um, and Twitter and all these others, it is to uh, create filter bubbles so that you and you, you your your own tendencies become um, reinforced. Okay, so one of the commonalities among all of these cases, and each one of them has its uniquenesses, which you know says you can't say, oh, that's the p- specific pattern. But they're all alienated white young males, whether they had a girlfriend involved or not. Okay. Um, And they all got caught. Because somebody saw something and said something. And how many lives were saved, we will never know. 
but it was a lot. But it was dumb luck, because if that chronology of interrupted mass murder plots in the last few days does not underscore the urgency of action on the gun situation in the United States and the alienated white male child, um, and yeah, 21-year-old in this world is still a child, um, as is a 23-year-old, and you know, I'm, science now tells us the male brain's not mature till it's 30. Um, but if the urgency of clear action is not demonstrated by the events of the last two weeks, I mean, Gilroy, California, there were three dead. The FBI is investigating ideological influences, multiple different ideological influences, um, looking at the potential that there is a hate crime enhancement. El Paso, Texas, there are now 22 dead, and the shooter's own words condemn him as a racist. But how did he get there? What made him that? Dayton, Ohio, there are nine dead. The shooter killed his own sister. Yes, he explored many violent ideologies, and he, quote, shared mental illness issues, unquote, with his most recent girlfriend. And he had a gun. So if those instances, within a week, plus all of these these four would-be, five would-be mass murderers. If that doesn't create an environment for something to change, then nothing will. And that's the fear that too many have. On Friday, a poll showed 94% of voters favor stronger, smarter, universal background checks. But with the speed of news, you know, El Paso, whoop, disappeared overnight from the uh, from the front page. Um, Dayton disappeared moments after it happened from the front page. But on Saturday of this week, yesterday, you know, we'd been talking about the gun issue and the and the pressure on Mitch McConnell to bring the Senate back, et cetera. All of a sudden, all of that vanished when. Um, Epstein was found dead of an apparent suicide in his cell um, and the Justice Department's um, repeated failures in this department um, became when Jeffrey Epstein's body was found. All of a sudden, everything went away except DOJ and the victims. Okay, so one of the fears is that by September... Will Congress still care about taking up meaningful gun um, reform? And if recent history is a predictor of future behavior, then I'm going to give you some caution. Because we had these conversations after Sandy Hook, after Orlando, after the first member of Congress was shot in Tucson, Arizona, Gabby Gifford, after Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, after Steve Scalise, a second Congress member, was shot on a baseball field in Alexandria, Virginia, after the Las Vegas Route 91 massacre, after 
the after um, Parkland, and I could go on and after after Sutherland Springs, and we can go on and on and on. And two things are common when we talk about that. One, that many of those shooters got their weapons got their weapons legally with a background check, which means the background check is insufficient. And again, with a singular exception of Orlando, all of these were alienated white males. And by the way, the one in uh, the shooting of Steve Scalise was done by a Bernie Sanders supporter. And so I, I think we have to stop blaming it all on white supremacy and blame a lot of it on the extreme voices on all sides of our current political debate. And we'll be back in just a moment to talk about scoring political points at the expense of victims. You're listening to Reimagine America. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org, reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy. And we're back. And scoring political points was a big part of the agenda this week at the expense of the victims. It makes me wonder. Have we become so accustomed to these events that we now just take them in stride? What happened to the national mourning, the memorial services, you know, lowering the flag to half staff over the White House is one thing. But the memorial services that past presidents used to bring a grieving nation together, if only for a moment, have faded away into photo opportunities and raw political opportunism. Candidates, media, and non-governmental agencies seized the moment, scoring political points as the bodies of victims were not yet laid to rest. And does that help? No, it sows disunity, fear, and anxiety in communities, and they know it does. They want to spread apprehension where we should be embracing unity. Trump, as usual, was his own worst enemy. He snatched defeat out of the jaws of victory by trampling on his own White House statement that condemned the shootings and called for national unity. And I'm pausing because that's what he should have done. But no, he gets on the plane to go to Dayton and El Paso, and he's got a live tr- stream Twitter screed with every Democrat that he could find out on the trail that day, whether they were a candidate or not. And then there's Beto O'Rourke, who couldn't keep himself away from any microphone starting on Saturday and moving forward. The first thing he did when notified that the shooting had happened moments before was to call home and assure himself that his family was indeed at home and not at the mall. Once he knew his family was not in danger, 
He never passed up another microphone thrust in his path in more than a week. Talk about trying to stir the embers of your failing presidential campaign in the midst of a bloodbath. Yeah, there are pictures of him hugging uh, the, the grieving. But this was raw political opportunism on a grand scale, proclaiming that all Hispanics are now targets. That's really responsible, unifying, and comforting in a city that is 85% Hispanic. And by the way, was 90% Hispanic when it became a part of the United States as a result of the 1848 Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, when the Rio Grande became established as the boundary between the United States and Mexico. This early 17th century settlement has always had this mixed culture. It's an area on both sides of the frontier that is called La Frontera. You know, I've worked in El Paso, um, and they are wonderful, hardworking people. And they've been in the United States, for many of them, for 10 generations. You can't catalog these people. They're human. They're wonderful. They're hardworking. They're lots of fun. Can't tell you. Too much tequila, but that's another story. Anyway, but that was not the approach Beto took. There's really something ghoulish about his trying to fan the embers of his campaign on the blood of his neighbors. It really, really annoys me. Uh, it really, it, it revolts me, personally. And then there's Elizabeth Warren. Elizabeth Warren is nothing if not predictable. She rushed out a plan to reduce the availability of guns by uh, 80%. I gotta say that that I, for one, I'm really tired of the top-line, one-page plans. What they are is all sound and fury signifying very little, except to proclaim, I have a plan. The plan is, as usual, to tax everyone. Written in the heat of the moment, it lacks all subtlety and uses her predictable tax of the rich, all CEOs are crook, crooks, and build new bureaucracies with the money you collect formula. Her plan ignores a couple of facts. But Mayor Pete, Mayor Pete, you know, this guy is really smart. I mean, McKinsey, you know, he's a McKinsey-trained management consultant. He knows the numbers, okay? So he tried to kind of ride, ride the wave of, Elizabeth's plan um, with the numbers. You know that there are 333 million estimated guns in the United States. Let me repeat that number. 333 million. We virtually have a gun for every man, woman, and child in the country. 15 to 20 million of those guns are these high-caliber um, semi-automatic rifles. Let me repeat that number. 15 to 20 million 
semi-automatic rifles are in circulation in the United States as we speak. Congress can, as Senator Warren suggests, place a tax of as much as, you know, 40% is her number, could be 80% on ammunition purchases, and place other restrictions to reduce the uh, frequency of purchase, etc. But let me tell you what, you know, confiscating guns, talking about reinstating the ban, if you reinstate the ban on new um, semi-automatic weapons, you still have 15 to 20 million in circulation. That might become an instance in which only the bad guys have guns over a period of time because you cannot, you cannot will an AR um, gun to your child in most states. They actually have to go through a background check. Um, <clears throat> I know that's true in California and most, at least half the states. Okay, but confiscating 15 to 20 million guns, number one, knowing the hysteria around gun ownership in this country, and it is hysteria, do you possibly think 15 to 20 million, 15 of the 20 million would voluntarily sell their guns back to the government? I don't. So here is the fact that everybody needs to live with. When it comes to AR-type rifles, 15 to 20 million exist. And when it comes to confiscating those guns, that horse has not just left the stable, but he's completely off the farm. We need to find a different solution. And that brings me to the point that's most important. Above the screed above the nauseating pursuit of political points instead of comfort to the grieving and reassurance to the nation. Okay, above that screed, the people of Dayton, Ohio, ordinary people like you and me, made the most important political statement. This is what is different in this moment. The people of Dayton stood there in front of their elected representatives and they shouted at them, do something. Tim Ryan, who is, I believe, a worthy candidate, but who can't catch a break in the Democratic presidential nomination contest, did something. He got a bus and he led a tour full of those chanting Dayton, Ohio citizens to Kentucky, which is like right across the river there, um, in order to pressure Mitch McConnell into bringing the Senate back into session. And you know what? Tim Ryan's not asking for anything that's extraordinary. He's asking for a debate on ideas that the House of Representatives passed earlier this year about background checks and a few other meaningful first steps to solving our gun mass murder crisis. And we'll be back in just a moment to talk a little about what Congress could easily do and why they have to wait for September. I don't get it. You're listening to Reimagine America. 
For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org. Reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy. And we're back. We've talked enough about the problem, so what are some reasonable solutions? There's some really simple, straightforward things that Congress could do. And if Congress can't get a bipartisan majority to do them, then we have much bigger problems. First, untie the hands of the FBI. You know, we have laws about international terrorism. So that the FBI can get a warrant and can proactively look at social media and other, um, the dark web, et cetera, in order to anticipate and interdict the possibility of a foreign-inspired terrorist attack. We have no such similar law dealing with domestic terrorism, although We've had domestic terrorism in one form or another since the Whiskey Rebellion under the Articles of Confederation. So Congress needs to pass a law that makes domestic terrorism the same type of terrorist crime as foreign-inspired terrorism so that the FBI can act proactively instead of reactively. Oh, they act proactively all the time. I, I've I've seen plenty of former FBI agents who have gone undercover to infiltrate these white supremacist groups. They're doing it. The problem is these shooters, they're not really white supremacists. They're just kids who are easily influenced, who get who who like you said, who want who who want a community, have no community. They're 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 alienated. They're full of angst, and they get sucked into this ideology, and that's what I think is hard to predict and hard to 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 uh, get out in front of well, is when you don't you don't know whether a kid is just troubled and confused or if one is actually going to act on on something that they see online. Well, but if you give the FBI the surveillance tools that they have for international terrorism then they're going to have the opportunity or more opportunities to because in every single case there have been signs and warnings and trails, etc. And so if you give the FBI the right set of tools, they can go and talk to those kids. I didn't say they necessarily going to arrest every kid who ever goes into a black site. All right. But they can go and talk to those kids. And they can, in conjunction with the two other kinds of laws we need that we're going to talk about right now, background checks and red flag laws, we can interdict some of these kids and we can get them onto a better path before something terrible happens to them and to their um, and, and to innocent bystanders. I mean, there is, you know, one of the other things that's very common in these situations is that the perpetrator um either kills himself or is killed in the crossfire with with um 
the police. And there, there is a phenomenon. I think that's what the guy in Dayton was about. Okay, that's a, a purely a personal opinion, but it fits the pattern. Okay, and, and, and in the world I come from, we call that suicide by cop. So, yes, giving the FBI the tools they need to go in and anticipation proactively to work with these young alienated white males gives us a set of tools we don't have today. And, and, and I cannot understand why anyone in America would object to doing that. The next thing we need to do is we need to finally take, um, take the, our, our, our collective angst and put it to some uh, good use by actually funding. You know, we've approved um, the concept of the National Institutes of Health doing gun violence research, trying to figure out whether these patterns that, you know, we see in four or five instances are real um, and what to do about them. But we've never given them the money that they need. So, you know, this commonality of young, white, alienated youth, you know, it, it demands study for cause and correction. We can blame violent games. It's easy to say crazy, but mental health is not a, synony- a synonym for mental illness. Youth can be scared, confused, bullied, misled, and not be psychotic. A nation that is rife every single day with charges of racism is not a mentally healthy society. Next, 90% of Americans, 86% of Republicans, more than 80% of the NRA membership. So Wayne LaPierre be damned. We need a universal national background check system that covers all purchases, private gun sales, inherited guns, commercial internet delivered by a commercial dealer. However you get that gun, you got if there's an exchange of guns, there needs to be a background check. And it needs to be a background check against a single set of standards. Thus, you need the NIH research to continue to hone that set of standards. Standards that err on the side of caution when licensing a sale. I mean, if you can't parallel park in California, you cannot get a driver's license. Although I don't know that anybody has, you know, had a head-on collision in, in, um, in uh, parallel parking. So, for example... In the gun area, if a person is on the no-fly list, isn't it logical to say they can also, if they can't get on an airplane because they're dangerous to the public, shouldn't they also not be able to get a gun? We've never been able to enact that legislation. Isn't it time? We've also got to be able to do a social media history check. And yes, the FBI, in doing a background check, should have access to juvenile criminal records. You don't need as many red flag laws if you look for the red flags before you license the purchase. And by the way, three quarters, three quarters of Americans also support no uh, um, red flag laws. And that's going to be, that's why I put it down at the bottom of the list, because that's going to be the hardest thing to do. 
because you've got to balance individual rights with society's needs. You've got to be urgent in taking the gun, but consistent. So we've got to kind of think that one through. And last but not least, and this is the one where I expect I'm going to get some comments, and it's because it's the hardest on this list, but it, it would make a difference. If we limited the size of magazines, and, and we did what California now does that says if you want to buy ammunition, you've got to have a background check in place or you have to go through one. And, and that would prevent people from hoarding, and it would also take off the market 100-bullet magazines. What hunter needs a magazine that contains 100 bullets? That's a gun of war. Now, these steps are a beginning. They're not an end. But they would prove, eat, but they would prove, they would prove, even to the cold, dead hand NRA member, that the purpose is to, of gun control is to improve public safety and not to infringe on legitimate gun rights guaranteed by the Second Amendment. The Second Amendment talks about weapons for, of a defensive nature, of a regulated militia. And even the Scalia um, decision in the Heller case gives to government and says under the Constitution, the government has the right to regulate, to, to apply reasonable regulation to the possession of firearms. You know, on that subject of automatic weapons and whether we need a ban, a number of veterans groups, um, guys who fought in Afghanistan and Iraq, have made statements this week that advocate for the eventual discontinuation of the public ownership of AR-type rifles. Why? Because they say, we know, because we've used them, that these are weapons of war. And most of these former military even though they know that in their hands they know how to use these weapons, they are concerned about their availability in the commercial marketplace. So maybe, maybe how we deal with the AR-15 epidemic in this country, and yes, 20 million of those guns out there is an epidemic, is a subject for study and debate between the members of the one, one Country Caucus of military veterans in the United States Congress with their fellow soldiers. There is a caucus of former Iraq and Afghanistan veterans. All of these guys having, um, one, there's only one, only Seth Moulton does not have um, a serious life, uh, lifelong disability as a result of his service. But those guys... They've been there. They've handled those weapons in situations where their lives depended on it. Maybe they're the people who should get together across the aisle in a bipartisan fashion and talk this topic out. No finger pointing. Meaningful, patriotic, one nation, under God discussion. 
And we'll be back in just a minute with a few closing thoughts. Thanks. You're listening to Reimagine America. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org, reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy. And now that we've talked about some potential legislative um, changes, you know, I know I'm I'm a change agent. That's what my career was all about. And I know that change is evolutionary and not revolutionary. So if we took these first few steps, we could begin to make the change we all want to have. We'd be doing something. You know, I've spoken with several of my Hispanic friends this week. And they're afraid because people have told them they need to be afraid. And no, I don't think you need to be afraid any more than I'm afraid to go to synagogue. And there have been two shootings at synagogues this year. But for all of us, for all of us, we all have an obligation to one another. If you see something, say something. It's easy. Call 1-800. The number is 1-800-CALL-FBI. 1-800-CALL-FBI. They're there 24 hours a day, seven days a week. If you see something, by all means, say something. Don't be afraid. Don't Don't be embarrassed to be concerned. You might save a life. And if you want to learn more about some of the topics we've talked about today or listen to a podcast of this program, go to ricochet.com or reimagineamerica.org. I've talked about gun control on the blog a number of times over years. I know what interests me, but it's more important what interests you. So if you've got questions or topics, send me an email at joyce at reimagineamerica.org. We're independent and nonprofit. Please consider making a small donation at reimagineamerica.org if you appreciate our independent, thought-provoking voice. And have a wonderful day. Subscribe to the Reimagine America podcast at reimagineamerica.org and ricochet.com. Email Joyce at Joyce at Reimagine America Radio. Follow her on Twitter at Joyce Cordy, all one word. And you can follow the show at Reimagine Radio. This has been Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. Take a minute now and go to www.reimagineamerica.org. Join the forum, donate, tell others, and sign up to receive future podcasts. That's reimagineamerica.org. And join us again next week for Reimagine America. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.